G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous conversations. This is your refuge from groupthink and phony argumentation. I'm Josh Zepps, I'm a humorist and journalist, which are rapidly becoming the same thing if the antics of many self-proclaimed journos are anything to go by. Each week on this show, I bring to you one of the world's most fascinating persons, to join us on a ramble through the brambles of one big question in the news. This is the show that considers ideas that might not be polite, that might be taboo, but that are always inspiring and maybe, frequently, just a little uncomfortable. This week on the show, we challenge the very value of news itself. At least, the value of news the way that we currently consume it, both on screens and also through portals, through social media filters, which are tailor-made by algorithms designed by terribly wealthy 22-year-olds with skateboards in Silicon Valley and designed precisely to addict us. This is not a finger-wagging, scolding conversation about how you should delete your apps off your phone. It's not that at all. It's a conversation with a fascinating gentleman by the name of Oliver Berkman. He's a Guardian writer. He's a, he's a Brit. He's from the UK, obviously. That's what Brit is called. It'd be funny if you were a Brit from Australia. Don't know how that would work. Anywho, he's based in New York these days, and he's a, a, he has a regular online column on the intersection of social psychology and the news. And I thought, well, how perfect is that? Precisely the kind of thing I'd like to talk about on this episode of the show. He has a, a he has a column called This Column Will Change Your Life, which is sort of about kind of pop psychology ways of making you happier and helping you to think about your interaction, your your I suppose your mind's interaction with the world around it. That sounds a lot more wonky than it actually is. It's actually quite fascinating. But I first came across his stuff in his book, one of his books. It's called The Antidote. Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. And it's a sort of whimsical wander through the different ways that the ancients have told us we could be happy and a way of contrasting how different their recommendations are from the way that we actually live. And it shines a beautiful spotlight on just how silly we are for getting caught up in our mental adventures inside our heads instead of interfacing with the world in a way that is more raw, more authentic, and ultimately more fulfilling. I wanted to talk to Oliver when the pandemic began because I recalled an article that he had written back in May of 2019. I I was about to say May of last year and then I looked at my notes and I said, hang on, that's 2019, that can't be last year. 2019, that'd have to be about three years ago, wouldn't it? What's the year now? Is it 2022 yet? Is it 2025? How old am I? I feel like someone who's just just shaken me awake in in bed at two in the morning and said, how old are you? And I go, I'm 19! And then I go, oh no, hang on, I'm not. Do I have a cat? I don't know. Uh, It's all very disorienting at the moment, so I didn't even know what year it was. It's 2020. I do wholeheartedly apologise. July of 2020. Nonetheless, Oliver wrote this article a year ago now, and it reads like he could have written it yesterday. It's so prescient, 
It was actually shortlisted for an award. Oh, he's won all kinds of awards as well. I'm not going to do that whole nonsense where you go, Oliver Berkman won the Foreign Press Association's Young Journalist of the Year Award and was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize, both of which are true, but which probably don't make you more likely or less likely to listen to this, although maybe now that I've done that silly voice, you're marginally less likely to continue listening. So how about I shut up and we just start talking to Oliver, shall we? Does that suit you? Hmm? Suits me. This is not... I got some feedback from the first episode about, well, that wasn't a terribly uncomfortable conversation. You, the two of you, seemed to get along quite well. Let me put in context what the word uncomfortable means in the title of this show. It doesn't mean that I'm going to constantly have arguments with people and make them feel uncomfortable for no reason. I don't like that. That's part of what this show is designed to not be, the kind of cable news habit of, well, if we're going to cover this story, then let's get one person who agrees with it and one person who disagrees with it and we'll have them shout at each other on a panel. I mean, I might occasionally do that because it's sexy, but that's not going to be the MO of this show. The uncomfortableness will sometimes come from me disagreeing with my guest, but more often than not, it'll come from the two of us together trying to tease out something that is uncomfortable for us to to truly grasp, either about ourselves or about the world, that's uncomfortable for society to face up to, and that may be uncomfortable for you to consider, given where you sit politically, because it might conflict with what you think a good person ought to believe or it might conflict with what your tribe represents. So that's where the discomfort comes from. This particular episode is actually totally convivial, largely, because Oliver's so brilliant I can't bring myself to criticise him. This is moderately focused on America, this episode, because that's where Oliver lives, and we start out by talking about how he's doing living in Brooklyn at the moment during the pandemic. Um, he lives in the same suburb of, of Brooklyn, as, of New York, as I did. We talk about free speech and religion and why we sometimes hate our own side more than we even hate ISIS and how we should think about progress, whether or not we should be grateful for the progress that we've made as a society um, rather than scandalised by how much further we have yet to go. But don't you need a certain level of being scandalised in order to give you the motivation and the gumption and the get up and go to actually change things? We are at a moment of such roiling turmoil as a culture, as a planet, that Oliver's insight is more necessary than ever. And the big insight that he has is we might actually be consuming too much news and we might actually be too aware of what's going on in the world. So the question I'm asking... Oh, also, I should mention, this conversation was recorded... It was the first one I recorded for this show and it was recorded at the end of May... So we're talking about the pandemic at a time when New York was in a harsher lockdown and recent events in Australia hadn't taken place. So you'll hear me talk about Australia's quarantine hotels without a hint of irony about the fact that subsequently, in Melbourne at least, the quarantine hotel system turned out to be rather more porous than one may have hoped. And uh, Australia is now uh, scrambling to figure out what to do about uh, daily caseloads in sort of the hundreds now in Victoria. Um, so there's a reason why I'm not mentioning that. It's because it hadn't happened yet. And there's a reason why perhaps Oliver is, Oliver is somewhat more macabre and forlorn about his predicament in New York than hopefully he may be now, since we're sort of five or six weeks hence. Um, the question I am asking today is, should I ignore the news? 
Follow Oliver at Oliver Berkman. Follow me at Josh Zepps, J-O-S-H-Z-E-P-P-S, although that's not how you spell my last name. It's actually S-Z-E-P-S. Long story, long, long story. You don't have to bother, bother yourself with it. Follow the show at Uncomfy Convos, which is Uncomfy with a Y, Convos. And do go to your pod app and leave us a review and rate us. I know it's terribly boring, but the reason we ask you to do that is because we're only two episodes in. Nobody knows about us yet. For iTunes, for the algorithm to understand that we are worth showing to people, there just needs to be a bit of activity on it. It doesn't even matter, mean if it's a, matter if it's a bad or nonsensical uh, review or if it's a, a crappy rating. At least the algorithm will know that there's some activity there. So do that. Do it right now. Just open it on your phone while you're listening to this. Blah, blah, blah. Please enjoy the one, the only, Mr. Oliver Berkman. Uh, I'm in at home. Uh, it's, um, you know, I know, I know it's New York City, and I know it's still, to some extent, you know, the the center of everything uh, COVID-related. But you would probably not be able to tell from from this neighborhood, apart from the fact, of course, that you know. The stores are closed and uh, very few people on the streets. But it's um, <laughs> that would give you know it away I mean? it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. It doesn't feel it the does whole zombie apocalypse like... vibe on the street might be a hint that there's a pandemic going on. <laughs> yes, but the, but the, it does not feel like the centre of an emergency. It's very odd. I, you know, time is at a premium. Uh, two jobs and a small child uh, and no childcare and nursery school is a is a challenge. But but um, a lot of the time it feels rather lovely while you know reading the news and getting huge spikes of anxiety about mm. it we'll talk about that i think well yeah let's talk about that let's get let's dive straight into those spikes of anxiety and i think one of the more interesting pieces that i've revisited through the pandemic was a piece that you wrote last year uh, about our consumption of the news and how we spend way too much time actually focusing on events that are irrelevant essentially to our everyday lives and trying to uh, be virtuous by remaining informed about things that are going all over the world and that that may actually not be the healthiest way to live. Right. I mean, th- th- that was the idea I was trying to get at in this in this piece. It's not like... Um well, two levels, I suppose. Yeah, it's not necessarily the healthiest way to live to spend that amount of time embroiled in the sufferings of the world. But it also might not be best for the sufferings of the world, right? I think I think there's a there's a connection between what's gone wrong with our politics and the degree to which people are are engaged with the news around the clock. I do feel as a caveat is in order when I'm when I'm talking about this piece, which ran in the newspaper that I work for and I'm very happy to do work for. And, you know, it's I I just at the outset, I don't think I am saying that we should uh, screen ourselves away from knowing about what's going on in the world. I think there are specific ways that we relate to the news these days, especially uh, via social media, although not only, that are particularly kind of problematic, both for our personal psychology and for what it does to civic life. What are those ways? So really a couple of years ago, I I started to notice something among people I knew and various sort of high profile people. And to some extent myself as well, it really felt like people kind of lived inside the news stream. It's very hard to express this thought, right? It was as if the news was their primary reality and the world of their neighborhood or their family or their friends uh, was somehow secondary and that where they were sort of, they seemed to be more and more identifying with, with 
the news stream. This was, you know, in the UK, this was a lot around Brexit. And in the US, it was a lot around the 2016 election of Donald Trump, obviously. And it just seemed to drive them crazy in a kind of a, in a fairly serious fashion, because obviously, you know, then at that point, you are completely living in a drama that actually you don't have very much control over and that is sort of unending. And um, yeah, so it was that sense that, that people were sort of somehow had taken up residence inside the news. <laughs> and I think a part of what's going on there is the fact that that social media especially, it makes you feel that you're that you're doing something when you when you are consuming the news more active than than if you were just watching it on on, on TV, say for example. You mean because you get to comment on it or like it or share it. Right, right, exactly. Or even just the infinite scroll and clicking around, right? Mm. I mean, even that is a certain kind of, of engagement that you don't get um, in other in other contexts. It's funny, you, it's funny you mentioned the infinite scroll because I hadn't realised until I actually did a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival about this subject last year that the infinite scroll was not part of the original architecture of social media, that when Facebook was launched, you could finish Facebook. You could right, get to. Right. You know, it sounds so ridiculous now, but yeah, you could get to yeah. the end of Facebook. It was a you know it was an intentional uh, sort of strategy for them to introduce something called the infinite scroll, so that you would just get trapped in this thing and you'd spend more more time on site. TOS, which is the metric that you know the the gold standard by which they against which they measure everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. I do actually think I remember a little bit. Certainly, some things that went went in some services and sites that went infinite and previously weren't um yeah right and it gives this impression that this was all waiting for you rather than of course being constantly loaded in according to your according to what you've already liked and lingered on so that so that it's sort of guaranteed as far as possible to get you to stay even longer uh, on the site and you know obviously there's been like round the clock news is not a new thing that was cnn in the us in the 80s was was the pioneer of the idea that you could that you could consume the news uh, all the time, but you kind of probably wouldn't want to because um, it's sort of insufficiently engaging to sort of watch those reports for you know hours and hours and hours. Mm. Um, and, and so I think it is this. I think it is this idea that you're that you're doing something um, that you uh, have some kind of involvement in the story, and and also depending on your personality almost some sense of obligation to um, to keep up with and to sort of feel bad about every bad thing that's happening, that it is a sort of inexcusable, we can get onto this, but the idea that it's a sort of inexcusable expression of uh, unexamined privilege to like decide not to care about some thing that is happening somewhere uh, in the world that is that is terrible, and that the people directly involved in do not have the option of of mm. not caring about. I mean, it, there's just so much there that kind of overloads us in the sense that, like, we were ne- we were never designed. We did not evolve to to uh, deal with that amount of uh, of sort of of horror. And and of course, the attention economy functions so as to present us only with the 
the worst stuff. This is a bit more familiar material, I think, but, you know, and thereby we get this kind of completely distorted picture of how things are because the stuff that is mundane and boring has no, has no value in that scroll. So, I mean, it, it's yeah. interesting so it the, your mention of the kind of moral, moral approbation that comes along with not paying constant attention to the news because uh, that's sort of half of it, but it's only half of it, isn't it? Because when you're talking about CNN in the 1980s and nobody would just sit down and watch hour after hour after hour of rolling news coverage, which I think is also true of, for example, rolling news coverage that the public broadcasters in the UK or Australia might produce. That has been replaced in the US, at least, by rolling aggravated opinion and outrage on news networks. So even CNN now is no longer a place where you go to find out about stories around the world. It's mostly a place where you go to see talking heads on a panel arguing and getting angry about something that Donald Trump is doing. And I wonder whether that... So there's no... I don't think that that there is a... that people have a sense that consuming that is a moral good, but they do still have a sense that not knowing about what's going on in Sudan or Yemen uh, is, is a moral, is a sin. Right. I mean, I think what I'd probably want to say about, I think it's a really good point. I think the, 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 the thing that is so extraordinary about the, the social platforms is just that they will tailor themselves to whatever kind of person you are. And if the thing that pushes your buttons is uh, getting enraged at people with, with the wrong opinions, then, then that is what you will see. And I think that is what, in many ways, the cable networks are now sort of trying to keep up with. Uh, is is the the twitter outrage cycle but equally you know if you're the kind of person who um who consumes stuff that you sort of that because you're a kind of someone who wants to feel that you're being a good person uh it will that will find you and you can uh, and you can feel guilty about not doing anything about that <laughs> i mean i think the the moral the moral side of this is it's it's difficult right because i mean i think that any one of the kinds of stories that people think we should be caring about we should be caring about uh, if they were on their own. But there is this kind of overload situation. You know, I get, as you do, I'm sure, you know, countless emails every day from a million different um, uh, nonprofits, campaigns, whatever, trying to, you know, wanting donations, wanting petitions to be signed. It, it no longer works. No, you know, it's unimaginable that any one of those organizations would ever say, you know, that uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of an issue that um, police brutality, civil rights infringements or say or um, or air pollution. It would never say like this is the sixth biggest problem in America. And we really <laughs> need you to uh, we really need you to pay attention. It, mm. it has to only be the biggest problem. Mm. And and the problem with that is, you know, uh, and so everybody is motivated, even very good people working for great organizations everybody is motivated in this race to the extreme and to sort of making sure that uh if you pay attention to them you will you will just get even more deluged with stuff that you feel you ought to do Mm. something about i think one of the end results is is that you don't do anything about anything when actually you know maybe yeah and that's interesting that you say that because i think the indignance is an important component of this. Like it's it's not it's not just that the charity doesn't want to admit that they're the sixth most important issue. It's that they they want you to believe that if you're not angry, then you're not being a responsible citizen. You're not paying attention. Like it's it was like after Trump. Right, you know, right. if you're not furious, then you're not paying attention. Yeah, well, yeah. can't I pay attention and think that it's wrong and also 
love my cat. And, you know, not <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just focus on right, that. Right, just focus right, on right. the on the micro instead of the macro all the time. And so, I, I mean, I think we should bring the conversation to the pandemic here because one interesting thing about your argument pre-pandemic was that we're spending a lot of time uh, sort of signalling our own virtue by being all wrapped up in anger and and fury about these things that are going on, but they're actually quite abstract. And in a, in 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 a practical, real life way, the election of Donald Trump shouldn't be the most important thing in your personal life. Your personal life is about family and community and going to work and what I'm doing and, I'm, you know, do I have enough to eat and do I, am I surrounded by people who love me? So Brexit should not be the number one thing that I'm thinking about all the time and nor should the re-election of Scott Morrison in Australia last year. But the pandemic actually does. That is, there, here is a news story that is both the number one news story in the world and also has the potential to actually kill me. Does that change the equation? It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, 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 it clearly does in certain ways because the idea that you know people were voluntarily immersing themselves in the news cycle is sort of flipped. The news cycle is uh, is coming to every every home, whether you whether you like it or not. I think that um, you you do still see this this phenomenon, right? Of of um, Everybody competing in the attention uh, environment to say that that a particular aspect of this story is the one that that really, really, really demands your your attention and your your anger. Um, and uh, you know, plenty of the things that have happened are quite are quite um, anger-inducing. I don't, I don't think that I, none of this is about saying that like you should be able to look at any of these issues and think, well, that's just fine. What happened to you know? Um, uh, nursing home residents in in the UK or the US, for example. I mean, not at all. But I do think that um, there is this. Uh, well, first of all, the same dynamic plays out. I mean, the the, the, the all the, the everyone use everyone publishing onto every social network has the same uh, incentives uh, as they did. You also get this very strange phenomenon. I hope this is an answer to your question. But and I don't think people quite realise that this happens. You get a situation where. I honestly feel that a lot of us are receiving an exaggerated sense of this story, even though I will 100% endorse the position that it's an absolutely massive and incredibly scary and serious and historically unprecedented story, right? Because there is this pressure on every news organization, I think, to to select the strongest line from from all the stories that they have to uh, present what they have in the most sort of um, in the most eye-opening terms. And so you get this very strange situation where like it kind of is a total catastrophe and yet it is still possible, I think, to come away with um, a kind of overloaded and, 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 uh, disproportionate sense of of what it actually is does mm. that make sense i'm it very wary does. of making it sound like I'm well, one of the people who thinks it's nothing to worry about or just like the flu i mean certainly not it's and so yet, tricky i know, mean it's tricky because i think it also m- depends on when in the pandemic we're talking about because as you're talking i'm just casting my mind back to february march and northern italy imploding and right. uh the sense that i had then i had two conflicting senses one was that is horrendous, 
and we have to do everything we can to ensure that that doesn't happen on a global scale where you've got hospitals that are too overwhelmed to, yeah, yeah, yeah. to you know and are making triage decisions and, and leaving dying people in hallways and so on but the second thought was that is happening there and it's a very long way from here and here is different so i don't have to spend all i don't have to expend all of my consciousness and attention on what's happening to people in lombardy uh I'm in Sydney, so, so it, it's a it's yeah. a it's a funny contradiction. You want to heed the warning that the news is giving you, but you also want to be able to be detached enough from it that you can go, well, all right. I just have to make sure that I take care of myself here, and I don't have to spend all my time thinking about that. Right, right, and there's also this yes, absolutely, and there's this other paradoxical problem that you know I think that there has been an element of the way the attention economy works could be characterised as as fear mongering about. Um, covid and yet as others have said i'm just repeating them like there's something to be said for everyone being incredibly afraid mm. in a pandemic well, you know, I, look i was one of the mongers of the right of the right behavior i was know? one of the i was one of the early mongers uh <laughs> being a being a bit of a data wonk and an epidemiological nerd uh i i was early to this and i was i was one of the people who was shouting from the i mean i, I took my kids out of daycare uh when people still thought that was a ridiculous thing to do i was buying canned goods when people thought that was a, a silly thing to do uh and strangely when we talk about those those weeks where um you know italy and spain started getting hit uh i started feeling tranquil and kind of placid and calm in a way that i hadn't for about four or five weeks because i was no longer a crazy man who had to try to convince the world that I was insane. Now the whole world had come around. Uh, self-isolation was being introduced. Borders were being closed. We were all re-evaluating everything. And so while everybody else was on, on this ascent of feeling increase, increasingly anxious, I was on the way yeah. down because I felt like, okay, the train's leaving the station. Everyone's on board the train. We're going somewhere. I don't know where it is, but at least we're going. And I don't have to be standing on the platform screaming to people to get on the train anymore. I think that's a I think that's a great point, and I think that the other thing that I have sort of haven't emphasised in just um, looping back to the peace of mind that you mentioned is that um, there has been throughout this several things that anyone can do, like real things that you can do on a daily basis uh, to protect yourself, protect your family, and protect the community at large. Um, even if you're not, you know, actually on the front lines of this. Um, it's a slightly odd thing in the sense that it's a negative thing. You know, it's staying at home and not doing your usual activities, but but wearing masks and washing your hands and disinfecting the, you know, door handles of your apartment building. Uh, you know, this is in contrast to that kind of strange fake agency of, um, you know, clicking and scrolling to 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 imagine that you're somehow impacting the world by by expressing your thoughts about it on twitter obviously people are doing that too at mm. a very uh, at a very high volume but you know i think there is there is no better cure for anxiety than action right i mean yeah. if, and if there are things that you can do um it is it's just it's just transformative because like i don't know you know that, that's just it, it's the you you take control of what you can control the old sort of you know stoic approach and um and that makes the stuff that you can't control uh 
less tormenting. I wonder if that's part of the perniciousness of social media, that it makes you feel like you can control more than you actually can because you can always tweet a snarky response back to someone or you can always comment on something someone has posted and you feel like you're you feel like that is actually achieving something. I mean, I get caught in this trap all the time. I, you know, I'll waste 45 minutes <laughs> on Twitter arguing with people and in front of an audience of just a few thousand people when if I spent yeah. that time thinking about, I don't know, writing an op-ed column for a newspaper or something, then it, those 45-minute periods each day over a week, that's enough time to write yes. a column and I'd be able to reach yes. 100,000 people instead of, <laughs> instead of just a few people on my Twitter feed. It's crazy. But it right, feels right, I feel right. like I'm doing something. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it is a little bit different for 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 journalists and and for people who like have some shot at having some influence over somebody's opinion. But but yes, still, point totally taken. I'm absolutely um, susceptible to it too. Mm. This this feeling that the, the feeling that by sort of or you know delivering a sick burn against uh, uh, some someone who said something outrageous and bad. This is another very great. It is fun though, isn't it? Twitter activity, but, but you know, you know the sense that you have somehow that you have somehow acted that day, and you can okay now now you can go and relax because mm. no one no one can say you haven't uh, justified your existence. There's also another just on a side point really, but I've noticed this in myself that this is this was the kind of the lowest point of my Twitter addiction, which I think I have somewhat uh, under control now. But um, where if some news event happens. Uh, for example, if somebody famous uh, dies, but not somebody who was known to you personally or, or, or whose work you meant something very specific to you personally. Nonetheless, I've noticed and I've other people with a few thousand Twitter followers equally ha- have, have reported this too, right? You, you find yourself thinking that you've, you've got to say something about it on Twitter. Like you've got mm. to have an opinion. Like you've got to it, – it's, it's astonishingly – uh, pompous, really, mm. the notion that, like, as if I were the embassy of some small nation state or something, you know, I've got to emit. Um, <laughs> uh, it needs to be of, a press release, a, yeah. A decree about the, just to, to <laughs> my condolences. Nobody cares about mm. my mm. condolences. And it's, and it's, you know, maybe that's partly me being sort of um, uh, deeply narcissistic, but I think that that is, you, you see that kind of behavior a lot it's just this idea that and it's the same thing right i mean it's a different version of the idea that like you have to do something in Mm. this realm um that's so true (laughs) speaking speaking of being a small embassy do you remember that during the the 2016 election uh donald trump when he would make policy announcements at his rallies he would hold up a piece of paper and he would say donald j trump hereby declares a total and complete shutdown of Muslim immigration to the United States. And he'd read it in the third person off a piece of paper instead of just saying it as if he was saying it. It's like it was, you know, it was like Moses had handed him a tablet and he was reading this this kind of emperor's decree. And I remember noticing it at the time. And I thought that's actually a very effective tactic. It gives this kind of formality and pomp. Uh, to yes. what is really just a brain fart, you know. Right. It's like the, it's like those certificates you can buy for like ten dollars, saying that you own a piece of the moon yeah. or a or a star <laughs> in a distant galaxy. It's like okay, whatever. Yeah, no, yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And having to yeah, that's true. So right about you know, recently um, Australia's most controversial and popular broadcaster, Alan Jones, um, retired, and it was the same phenomenon where all of the Twitterati 
had th- felt the need to either snark on him or kiss his ass. And right. I was like, you could just sit this out. Yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't really yeah, care no. what you think about him, his career. It's like he's just sit it out. The other thing is that those Twitter burns that are so fun, they make me a bad person. They make me someone who I don't like very much. I was recently responding. Someone had said, someone had had poo-pooed people who call themselves doctor, but they're actually PhDs in, you know, English literature and insist that everyone call them doctor. And I responded by saying that sometimes when I'm on the air, I will just have to pass over a producer. If a producer has written an intro and it says doctor, I don't necessarily want to mislead the listener into thinking that we're talking to a physician if we're talking about something that, for example, is adjacent to the health um, to healthcare work. Um, so if we're talking about the pandemic with a doctor of botany or something like that, I don't want to say doctor because that could be misleading. And of course, then all of the PhDs come in and and pile on me as if yes, I'm yes. you know an irresponsible journalist for uh, for not respecting their credentials. And one person said, if if you didn't introduce me as doctor, I would correct you then and there on the spot and hang up. And I responded to him, uh, it usually takes more than just the first few seconds to tell whether a guest has a tiny penis. Now, it's a pretty good burn, but is that who I want to be? Like, I looked back on it and I'm like, hang on, that's not me. It's like we're all in the final scene in 8 Mile and Eminem is trying to dunk on on the other rapper. Yeah. Yeah, you know. No, it, uh, yeah, no. I totally, I totally empathise with that, with that feeling. If, I, if anyone ever tweets uh, that you know they regretted what they said, they just sort of like got caught up in the moment. I'm just so sympathetic to that. Oh, I'm definitely. Like, yeah, yes, yes. yes. I mean, if, but of course, people don't want to do that either. No, and I didn't either. Is it a problem that our conversations are taking place in public? So this whole dunking thing, for example, it, it only works because you know that there's an audience. If I was having this conversation with this person one-on-one, there'd be no point in being so mean. I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think it's worth saying that there's a, there's a sort of structural disingenuousness, right? That that um, and, and this actually affects a lot of more traditional op-ed writing too. It looks like what you're trying to do is persuade somebody who disagrees with you of the merits of your view. But what you're actually doing is demonstrating to people who already agree with you that you are a bona fide member of that tribe mm. and you are if you're a little bit more irresponsible about it on social media you may be sort of trying to marshal your troops to go and um to go and attack the the other side mm. and that actually bring i mean we i can skip ahead if you want but the other thing i was trying to get at in that in that piece we were talking about is that this is actually an interesting case where the degree to which we are enmeshed in politics and politicizing everything else all the time online is actually some people have argued and i tend to agree with them really bad for democracy you know it's a kind of a strange paradox that we are probably doing politics in some sense of the word more than than ever before uh, everything is sucked into uh political um uh debate into political polarization and so you know, actually, a lot of this kind of engagement with the issues that is so morally uh, celebrated may actually be making it harder and harder and harder to get anything done uh, mm. at the level of uh, at a political level as well. There's also a huge opportunity cost in what we're not talking about when we're talking about these big <laughs> things. You know, like that was the tragedy of Brexit. I, I, I felt like, and I mean, it's, there's certainly a parallel with Trump that 
uh, my brother lives in the UK and I was in London when the Brexit vote happened. And over the subsequent years, I just thought like the amount of attention that is being heaped onto this one moderately arcane technocratic story when, you know, think of think of the number of human mind hours that could have been put into fixing climate change in the four years that have absorbed tens of millions of Britons' attention about the backstop. It's yeah, just a yeah. huge waste. It's a huge fucking waste. It is. I mean, I'm torn because I think I totally agree with you, and yet I think there are aspects of it that are kind of that that strike me as deeply legitimately tragic what's happening but, but now the, you're just, caught in the, in the pickle my, of your own well, sort of contradiction aren't you well yeah no i mean i don't i don't i mean i i it, it's it, it yeah i mean possibly there none of this is going to seem very significant a few years from now and i'm going to think that even the things i felt that i legitimately cared about in the mixture of, of brexit were not um were not worth caring about but i mean i think you can sort of I, I'm I'm certainly not a perfect, uh, uh, you know, dem- exemplar of the um, of the of the ideal way of behaving <laughs> that I'm talking about here. I do think that, um, yeah, I think the the really important part of that's right in what you're saying is, you know, firstly all the time that it took up, but also the time that it takes up. I mean, I'm just extending the point when you're not on Twitter, right? Because the because the problem one of the problems with social media and the attention economy more generally it seems to me is that it 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 determines your map of reality in ways that affect you um once you're no longer looking at the app on your phone or your computer right so it, it will tell you you know it will create a sense in you of what your political opponents are like or how dangerous your neighborhood is or how divided your country is and that then becomes part of the real way in which you you know exist in the rest of the world uh psychologically mm. and and that that is kind of so there's a kind of a corrosive effect mm. even if you're only spending an hour on twitter in the day you know it, it, you find yourself kind of your, your view of the world is, is conditioned by it. one of the saddest things that lots of people have said about about brexit is that in parts of the world like um the north of england where i come from my parents live where there's a lot of, you know, it's not 100% one way or the other. There's a lot of people on both sides of that um, dispute. You find yourself kind of, it's harder to just chat to random people because you find yourself wondering if they might be on the other side. Mm. And and so, and you probably don't even talk about it because you're British all the same uh, <laughs> at the end of the day and you're not going to like uh, cause a huge row in the high street. But but, um, you know, it, it changes the way we relate to not only to our political rivals and our political opponents, but to people who might or might not be our political opponents. And in any case, the whole point of our relationship with them is not political. You know, they're, mm. they're the nice old lady at the top of the street. And the fact that she might have some. There was a time when you just wouldn't have had a thought about what views she might have had about certain things. And she might have had some pretty nasty views about mm. certain things. But actually, maybe there's some benefit in not a hundred percent of the time uh deciding whether to have a social relationship with her or not on the basis of those views. i mean that that way lies the destruction of civil society 
altogether. That's and ultimately, right. you know, if you took it to its most extreme conclusion, to civil war or or, or or some such. I mean, I think that's it's so true that the insistence on judging everybody's every opinion about everything through the prism of your own sense of moral righteousness and political allegiances and tribalism is uh, is a is a surefire way to balkanize a society and turn you into a, a, a bunch of clusters of warring groups. Um, yeah, the old yeah. lady, I mean, look, I'm married to a man. What do I think most old ladies in the north of England feel <laughs> about that? And do I want that to be a, a litmus test as to whether or not I right. can have a pleasant interaction with them? And right. there would be a cohort of the left who would say it's in, it's morally important for me to care about that, that, it's, that you know, what? this comes right. back to if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Well, and there might, I think, you know, it's context dependent. There are contexts in which it would be important. And the most obvious one is, you know, uh, if there's something up for a vote that or a, or a choice of leaders that is going to affect um, people's, you know, equal rights. And at that point, you do have to you do have to relate to those people as your political opponents and make sure that, like, you get enough people on your side to the polling station. But it is that kind of absolute absorption of social life by politics. One of the people I quoted in that piece, Robert Talese, a um, political scientist at um, Vanderbilt University in, in um, Nashville, Tennessee, who's written a book called Overdoing Democracy, making this argument that too much politics is actually really bad for the goals of democratic politics. And one of the places that book began, as I understand it, is that after Trump was elected, there were a lot of newspaper articles about how you were going to deal with Thanksgiving in America, when you went, when all the family reunited for a meal, and your sort of Trump-supporting mm. uncle, of was, course, and was sitting at the table. For people who aren't in the Go states, ahead. Thanksgiving happens uh, two or three weeks after the election, so it's right, it's right, it's right, very right, fresh right. and yes, raw. Yes. No, completely. And and a lot of these pieces would say, well, you can take this approach, you could take this approach, but they often concluded with, you know, and if it's just impossible maybe you shouldn't go to thanksgiving this year you know maybe you have to skip out on it and his point is just like well maybe you can relate to your uncle in one of his one aspect of his being and not the aspect of his being that is a trump supporter it even i find it a little difficult to i think it's increasingly difficult for people to get their heads around the idea that it is not to endorse that person's political opinions to relate to them in a non-political fashion because you can always push the thing to an extreme right and you know once you're talking about like members of the Ku Klux Klan mm. uh, that's right know, if it was if your uncle was right, Hitler it's it's then... going to be appropriate not to go to Thanksgiving. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it is tricky. I think I, so. I guess uh, as we grope towards like some consensus here, is is it that is it that we're all a little bit precious and hysterical about how important the values that we hold are? Then, because if your uncle was Hitler, then you shouldn't go to Thanksgiving. Um, and the reason you shouldn't is because he poses a direct threat to the existence of civilization of human flourishing of uh, i mean he's he's a murderer the i guess the trump supporting uncle the the case on the left would be that the trump supporting uncle is a little bit like a nazi in the sense that he is supporting a regime that is actively that actively seeks to be 
a, to introduce a soft kind of authoritarianism in America, and that is deeply bigoted and incompetent and has already cost many, many lives from the pandemic and so on. So a case could be made. And what's the response to that? Is the response to that just, well, he probably has his reasons and I have to have a bit of epistemic humility in being so certain that I'm right? Or is it that I'm carving out politics from the domain of family? But in that case, then why don't you go and have Thanksgiving with Hitler too? (laughs) <laughs> this is such a great thought experiment or terrible thought experiment i mean i think i have two responses one of them is that i think there's an important distinction between followers and leaders i don't think it's the only point to make here but i do think that um you know i feel quite strongly that i want to be able to say that right at the bottom of people's emotional motivations for um supporting uh, a leader who i find you know, I'm extremely, extremely opposed to is going to be something that I can empathize with right at the bottom of the chain of motives. And that, you know, racism is an absolutely terrible thing. Racism often comes from fear. If you trace it all the way back down to what caused the fear originally, there might be something about that fear that is just like, you know, that is just a very human emotion that has gone, that has taken a, taken a, a path in its expression and its and its rationalizations that 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 uh, it it shouldn't have done. This is the argument that you know the worst person in the world was a sort of four year old child just trying to figure things out and feel safe and secure once. And that you know I think that right at the bottom of the chain of emotional reasoning of virtually any viewpoint is going to be something that is just a kind of rather pitiful kind mm. of kind of uh, fear or anxiety or, or, or something else. Also, I think that the thought experiment is kind of flawed anyway, because like one, once we're just talking about whether we're going to hang out with someone, I mean, possibly there's nobody who I wouldn't want to have a conversation with if that was the only question that I was being able to ask. If you're actually going to bring Hitler into it, he should be like, you know, he should probably be killed or or um, <laughs> taken into custody or something, right? I mean, I'm not. Is there anybody? Is there anybody in the world who, if my only option was to talk with them, I would prefer not to even talk with them because their views were so abhorrent. I mean, Mm. that seems to be based on a strange sense that I might fear I would suddenly like come to think they had a good point or something. And I've got enough strength to carry it. You're you're sort of, you're somehow platforming them just by engaging with them. Sam Harris makes an interesting point about this, which is that there's a kind of an uncanny valley of, of uh, badness among people, among interlocutors. So, like, if if you were to have a conversation with Hitler or Osama bin Laden, um, I think people would actually give you more of a pass than if you were to have a conversation with a neo-Nazi or not even a neo-Nazi, someone who is basically like Donald Trump Jr., (laughs) right? (laughs) you know, who who I'm not implying at all is a neo-Nazi, but is in some ways more toxic because he's not quite toxic enough. Like, you could have a certain level of curiosity talking to a jihadist, and right. there would be no assumption that you're condoning their ideas by doing so. But the moment you talk to, like, Dave Rubin, the right-wing internet uh, interviewer, all of a sudden right. you're, you know, you've been – somehow Gollum has, has touched you and you've been implicated in uh, well, something yeah, dark. I, yeah, and I don't think that's totally irrational, right? Because, I mean, because there is this sense that if somebody is right at the extreme, they are a bit more of a kind of a 
specimen of interest rather than a uh, conversation partner. I mean, and thinking about it now, you know, I, I, I would not want to be, I wouldn't want to go to an event that a white supremacist was speaking at because I wouldn't want to add to the numbers of the crowd. I wouldn't want to spend, to, to provide money through tickets. I wouldn't want to be uh, any, any part of massaging that person's ego. But, but like, if they'd written something somewhere and they'd already written it, I probably would take a look because I'm kind of curious to know how anyone could ever end up with that kind of um, that kind of viewpoint. And I think you could go even further at the risk of sounding sort of moralistic and priggish. But like, maybe we need to, uh, uh, you, you know, um, know what the hell is going on inside the heads of certain people if we're ever going to stop those movements becoming bigger and, mm. and more dangerous and then very quickly we're at the kind of time-honored dispute about whether seeking to explain why people are as they are is is somehow justifying uh that's really interesting uh, because are, I, I mean i do think that one of the problems that is that we're creating it through social media and through essentially social justice uh movements and uh, by which I don't mean actual civil rights but the sort of right, thought right. policing and word policing that comes uh, from both sides of politics but specifically from the left when it comes to social justice issues that that is impeding our ability to understand the enemy and it's it's actually doing a disservice to progressive young people for example to shelter them from uh, racist or homophobic ideas because they actually don't know what they're fighting against. It's quite amazing. Like I, in a strange way, when I when I talk to conservatives, they seem to have a better understanding of the liberal worldview, the smaller liberal uh, left wing worldview, than the lefties do about conservatives. When I, yeah. I, I'll find that the left will assume that conservatives in Australia are mean and money hungry and uncaring towards the poor, which may all be true, but that's not how the conservatives see it. <laughs> they regard right, themselves right. as being yeah. economically responsible in favour of economic growth and prosperity, which will lift everybody up, um, mm. you know, prudent and disciplined and rewarding of the right things. Uh, you know, there's a whole worldview that seems that we seem to be sheltering ourselves from. This well, well, yeah, and I mean, I, I, think that's, I think that's right. And I think that I'm not necessarily saying anything startlingly original here, but I think that there is this very evident problem that the left side of the political spectrum is involved in 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 constantly radically reducing the number of the 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 population of people who are um who have acceptable opinions for for the left while the right is engaged in massively uh widening it all the time so it's very sort of self this very self-defeating situation where i mean it's not only that people are not exposed to bigoted opinions it's that more and more and more opinions are defined as bigoted or opinions that are bigoted but not in a very very terrible way are lumped with opinions that are very very terrible mm. and the obvious mm. case of this that many people have talked about is this strange um drift that has happened and come out of certain bits of academia over the last few years of, of the concept of white supremacy to to mean not only neo-nazis and members of the ku klux klan but also people who um you know are 
genuinely racist, but racist in a way that maybe they'd be reachable by a political movement that was interested in coalition building. Maybe they could eventually have their minds changed, not extremists, but kind of like, you know, the kind of uncle at Thanksgiving people. And then now you see it used to refer to anybody who doesn't invest all their time in challenging um, Mm. racism, even if attitudinally they might be completely not racist at all. So you get this, you get this, you get this situation where more and more people are grouped as the out group, uh, at least from the perspective of certain parts of the left and people who you might've been able to reach and change the views of, uh, hear you calling them uh, no better than the Ku Klux Klan and then say, well, screw you. And they're certainly not going to vote for you at the next election. So there's a kind of a, a strange, spiraling dynamic where where you just you just alienate more and more and more people and some of those people have like views that i consider to be obnoxious Mm. but but there's no hope for any kind of democratic politics if if some people if, if certain views maybe i have to just sort of get along with people even though they have them and other people i might be able to change their minds but not if i've not if i've ruled them out of membership Yeah, I mean, it may not even be that they have views that you disagree with. They might just talk about their views in a different way. This is part of my other problem with, I guess, social media and social justice, that there's there's a, for example, like race, let's take racism or or gender studies or any any of these kinds of issues. If you talk about trans rights or gay rights or or racism, there is a discourse that comes out of um, prestigious universities that coaches you in a certain way to talk about them, that talks about structural systems of oppression. It talks about, as you say, white supremacy not as uh, as something that just neo-Nazis do, but something that we're all complicit in uh, through the, the systems that we inhabit. And that kind of language has become synonymous with being alert to racism and being anti-racist. But there are... Right. There are blue-collar, working-class, non-university-educated people who are not racist in any meaningful sense. They don't have a that they they really want to love everybody, but they don't talk about race in that way. They haven't learned that yeah. language of that discourse. They haven't learned that structural way of thinking about things. So they'll put their foot in their mouths, and all of a sudden they're condemned as being racists. But what that actually just means is that they haven't learned a language that we're all inhabiting. And I think if you're going right. to, as you say, exclude those people from the party, then your party's just never going to be more than irrelevant. I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, even that would be true, even if we wanted to say that learning that language was the right thing to do. I mean, that's mm. a separate discussion. But even if we just say for the sake of argument that like, yes, that is the way you should be talking about everything. I mean, so give them, so give them a chance, you know. Mm. <laughs> don't, it, if if all you're going to do is say, well, because you don't talk in that way, you are expelled, um, and you see this happening. Like this is, there are so many different ways in which this is happening. If you expel enough people from your group, they just form a bigger group that can uh, mm. that can defeat you. I mm. mean, it's yes, it, and I think that uh, I don't think it's all a question of social media, but I do think that that, that one of the things that social media contributes to that is that. Um, it really, it really drives for various different reasons. It drives this kind of policing of small differences. It makes it much more um, uh, energizing to uh, expel from the community someone who you thought was in good standing 
and or who was in good standing until a few weeks ago than it does to rant at people at the far opposite side of the um political spectrum and i think we all to some extent can empathize with this reaction because i mean as i said in something else i wrote like if i really honest i spent much more time being enraged in a sort of emotional way with certain figures on the brexit leave campaign than i have done with like the islamic state Mm. and i don't really think that those brexit people (laughs) are are as bad but it's just you know this is the way psychology works right and even more enraging than the brexit people is the guy who parks illegally outside my apartment you know Mm. it's like Mm. it's like we're everything's upside down in terms of how our emotions uh are, are sort of uh um scaled to the to the seriousness of the thing and i think that at an extreme level that then becomes this kind of this kind of orthodoxy police yeah yeah which has a there's a it it comes it comes couched in the in the excuse of like opposing hate often as well so I'm, i'm thinking about um, there was a, a famous rugby player in Australia named Israel Folau who is uh, deeply Christian and he would use his Twitter platform to tweet out things about how fornicators and homosexuals are going to hell and will be judged. And Rugby Australia didn't like this, so they gave him a few warnings and when he refused to heed the warnings, they fired him. It was a huge national scandal about freedom of speech, um, corporate rules, uh, religious freedom and so on. And I was one of the few people who felt like, who felt, un- who, who continues to feel uncomfortable with corporations imposing speech rules, unless the speech is really an incitement to violence and truly fostering hate. But, but I was a very rare voice. I mean, especially on the left. I mean, everybody regarded it as being self-evident that he, his life should, his life and career should be ruined because he continued to espouse, you know. Hate in quotation marks, right, but right, from right. his from his, in his worldview, it's not hate. In his worldview, he's right. trying to encourage people who have gone gotten lost down a, a bad path to redis- to refine their way. And this is something that he's deeply right. committed to. I think his commitments are totally insane and batshit crazy, like all fundamentalist <laughs> religious commitments are. But that's of course I'd think that because I'm from I'm looking at it from my perspective. And what struck me at the time is a bit like what you're saying about the Islamic State. A lot of the people who were most outraged at his homophobia are the same sorts of people who, when, for example, a conservative imam says similar things, will be quiet because the conservative imam is an oppressed minority. You know, these are not people who get agitated about ISIS throwing gay people off the tops of buildings. They're people who get agitated about the UK and US and Australian governments trying to do something about ISIS throwing gay people off, off yeah. buildings. Because, yeah, there's this, I don't know, the, the target of your... Do you have any thoughts here about why why is the... Why are we so well, I think that, selective? Yeah, well, that's an... I mean, I think, the, I think that specific example brings in something else, which I think is also true, which is a sort of the, the issue of, like, clashing... clashing commitments and uh not wanting to inadvertently fuel one form of bigotry by condemning another form and the question of which forms all end up winning out in a reliable way on the left is very is very sort of interesting we could talk about it for ages and i'm not even sure what i think about any of that i think you can sort of even in addition to that there is just this fact of like the scale of the offense right so it's like it's like well 
one way of defending that that position would be that one expects more of uh, one's own community, or one expects more of a democracy than a than a country that isn't a democracy. Um, and uh, this is, you know, this is something that has comes up as an argument quite a lot in the context of the. Um, of Israel-Palestine, right? Yep. The, the, as, a def- as a defense against the idea that people are holding Israel to an unfairly high standard is the argument that actually uh, democracy should be held mm, to a... Mm. Uh, to yes, a, to I, a, I always say. So there's, I, there's a million different like levels of this. Yeah, right. I always say to my Likudnik uh, right-wing uh, pro-Israel friends, like you can't have it both ways. If Israel wants to say that they're being held to an unfair standard, then Israel should Israel's sort of national motto should be something like, "Hey, we're not Yemen." But if you're going to present yourself as being just like the United States or, or European countries or Australia and stand up on the world stage wearing a suit and tie and expect us to treat you like like a member of the club, then you have to do better than you're currently doing with the, with the Palestinians. Right, right. Yes, absolutely. And, and then it's contextual. I mean, that also makes me immediately think that someone listening to this would say, well, things aren't so great in the United States either. And, and again, there's something that... Um, Stephen Pinker has has written about in um, when he was doing all that stuff about how violence has declined, that our moral standards sort of seem to rise through time faster than the reality of what's happening on the ground. So we are now in a situation where where um, the use of torture by um, a sort of a government that we consider to be a reputable and uh, legitimate government is a hundred percent abhorrent. That means that when instances come to light of them using torture, it is deeply, deeply outraging and, uh, and, and sort of horrifies us. But, you know, obviously go back a few hundred years and it was the fundamental, it was the basic method of, um, of, (laughs) of, uh, sort of criminal, criminal justice. So what's Mm. happened is that our morals have, have, gone all the way from uh, torture is great to torture is uh, a monstrosity. And the reality has gone almost all the way from torture happens all the time to torture is, uh, has not been uh, completely stamped out. And so it seems like the world is as bad as it's ever been or might even be getting worse, when actually it's a lot better than it was. It's just not as good as we very rightly, I think, in that case anyway, feel that it should mm. be. And, so, I mean, it will, so always, gap, it will gap, always be thus, right? I mean, by definition, you, the, the behave, your behaviour is going to lag your aspirations. Right, you're right. Al- you're yeah. always yeah, no, going to have yeah. you're always going to be one inch ahead of your actual capacity to implement the highest standard of values for yourself as a right. culture or a society. So, by definition, you're always going to feel like you're falling short. Right. No, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it, it's a it's a, it is a I do understand why some people think that this argument is a sort of is a sort of backdoor excusing of the of the bad things. I, you know, I un- I understand why people get. Uh, distressed by the argument that for example um you know i think as i have made this argument you know that and had some pushback from it like there is something to be celebrated about the fact that the whole of this country the united states or very large proportions anyway of the liberal side of this country from the canadian border to the mexican border and from the east coast to the west will be will be d- 
deeply, deeply scandalized and outraged by an instance of, um, you know, unjustified police violence against an African-American person. There's actually some, I mean, you know, this is a terrible instance when it happens, but but there was a time when it happened all the time and people in communities like the one I lived in, live in wouldn't have, wouldn't have like cared. And mm. that was surely a vastly worse time. Yeah. And so it's very difficult. I totally then see why when you make that argument, it looks like you're saying that we should be grateful for the, for the, um, you know, for the situation we have when obviously these things, and I've made the argument in reverse, right? Well, why shouldn't we? Are... Why shouldn't we be? I don't, I'm not as, as empathetic as you are towards the, that <laughs> point of view. I re- I'm really not. I don't have time for it. So, that, you know, well, if people aren't familiar with Stephen Pinker, let, let me just color that in. So Pinker, yeah. Pinker's sort of take is we're all, we, we spend a lot of time saying that the world's going to hell in a handbasket. But when you actually look at the metrics of the things that we care about, like babies not dying in childbirth and people not dying from preventable diseases and how much money people people have and people not starving and so on by almost every metric and you can bring in race and social justice and gay marriage and things like that here the things that we claim to care about are getting much much better and have been for decades and so what you're articulating there Oliver is the pushback against that which says yeah but 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 I find the but 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 pretty unconvincing well, I will now turn on a dime and make the argument because I have also written a piece uh, sort of trying to push back against the kind of uh, that sort of optimistic take of, mm. of, of Pinker and others, the world is getting better and better and better. And it, not because I think the data is wrong. It really is true. And, you know, um, to take the police brutality thing uh, example, I think the figures are very clear on that, that this is a, you know, over a long term, uh, over the long term, we have every reason to believe that things are getting better and better and better. But like, why why here's the here's the devil's advocate argument why why use that metric like why say it's so great that there are only occasional famines uh in the developing world these days that compared to how many there used to be because we've all agreed that famines are bad right but why not say um why say that it's good that there are only a few and why why instead of saying it's scandalous that there are any right because that i'm picking the example to slightly um you know, uh, make my point for me because it's famously a thing that there is no sort of natural reason for there ever to be. I think it's, I think it's seems to me to be generally accepted that, 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 that sort of true famine is a political, is a result of. Yeah. There's enough, uh, there's enough food to go around. We could, we could figure out how to eradicate famines if we wanted to. So why is the comparison point the past instead of the, instead of where we could be? I mean, that's, that, that would be the argument, right? The argument would be like, why, is, why, why should we be happy and content and complacent about the fact that there are so many fewer war, deaths in war today? Well, complacent, is a, complacent, is, a, complacent is a different question. Okay, okay, yeah, but, okay. but, but, but that grateful. rather than to finish, right, but why not outraged at the fact that there are still so many? I mean, it does well, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think my response to that would be because the past is an actual existing metric that is real and your aspiration that you just pulled out of your ass about what you want the future to look like isn't right you could you mean you can just spend your entire life constructing utopias and then railing against the fact that you're not living in one but that strikes me as a less useful uh, mindset than looking at the actual concrete things that have really happened and trying to figure out whether or not you're on a, a an improving trajectory or a, a worse one I think it depends because I think that, you know, to a certain extent, maybe not anger, but certainly feeling that things are wrong uh, in the world is a is a is a motivator of um, 
possibly in some sense the only motivator of of change and i think that gratitude though it's a very positive thing can can be used as a way of sort of um uh, as a reason to for people who have a vested interest in not taking action on certain things to not take action on maybe. i kind of agree with you maybe you know, but maybe, I, I, I mean i, I think too you, many sides. i think you're somewhat <laughs> begging the i think you're somewhat begging the question by assuming that the outrage is actually going to be fruitful i mean it may be the case that uh you know, having a Bill Gatesian or Stephen Pinkerian idea about the world is actually more useful in fostering future change by analysing what has worked and what hasn't in the past and trying to continue ratcheting up those improvements rather than uh, hunting for microaggressions about why everything is uh, why everything is terrible. I mean, it's interesting also, since you were talking about race and the fact that the left is scandalised by police brutality um, and that that's a positive thing, and I agree it is, that Actually, when you when you look, for example, at the Democratic primary race in the states, black people, and I think this is true in Australia and the UK as as well, that ethnic minorities are less on board with the narrative of everything is getting worse and everything is terrible than the largely white kind of politically correct university elite are. Like Democratic primary voters in the states were voting for Joe Biden, the moderate. They weren't voting for the woker candidates this so this comes back a little bit to this to what i was talking about earlier about there being a kind of educated university discourse that has now become synonymous with what is good on the left but the actual down home common sense people who are going about their lives uh in black american suburbs uh, are not as are not as swept up in that as as the people who claim to speak on their behalf think they are yes i mean i i agree and the figures the polling that i've seen all backs that up uh to a to a very great degree, there were there were um, polls released just a little while ago about the different demographic groups of Democrat, Democrats, uh, whether they were concerned at the fact that um, that about that that Joe Biden was a that the that the nominee was a white man, and that's something that many more white Democrats are concerned about than black mm. Democrats. Mm. Um, yeah, I think in some ways I think this is misleading because I think it's probably just a particular um, it, it's a particular extraction of the data along demographic lines that that maybe um, obscures uh, a more fundamental fact, which is that just like most people <laughs> uh, are not caught up in these in these kind of debates that carry so much value on on Twitter and in these kind of these kind of forms of language policing and the rest of it. It's like, regardless of your ethnicity, the chances are, if you're picked at random from a telephone directory in uh, the United States, that you do not know what's going on on Twitter and what people are fighting obsessively about. Um, so in other words... Oh, I, I'm, I'm not sure about are, that. I think, if, I think if we took your postcode, for example, of Park Slope, and you, we, you went into the phone directory there, that more people would both be across the latest transgression of some celebrity who put their foot in their mouth on Twitter and subsequently got fired by the New York Times uh, and would also have probably an opinion that it was right that that person did suffer consequences from having been racially or, or sexually insensitive uh, to some minority group than if you randomly took the phone book from an African-American suburb of Detroit or Chicago or Atlanta. I think that would be true, but I think it would also be true if you did the comparison with Park Slope and a, and a random suburb uh, that was 
that was a majority white place somewhere in in uh, right, North I America. See. I think yes, that's probably you're true. making yeah. a correct you're making a correct point about Park Slope. I'm not going to argue. That. <laughs> <laughs> right, but it's not necessarily a racialized point. Yeah, I take that point. Right. I, th- I, I mean, I mean, I think it, it may be it may be partly. I do just think that like this is maybe yet another example of, uh, you know, the fact that none of us who spend a lot of our time on Twitter can fully appreciate how how unrepresentative that place is yeah, of yeah. everybody else everybody else yeah, yeah. Um, let's just let's just loop back to the news and our and what we pay attention to and social media um, because I'd like you to to give us your advice about how we should sort of focus on things I, I remember hearing Marsha Gessen the Russian American journalist uh, talk about how one defining feature of a of a dictatorship or a totalitarian state is that whether you love or hate the leader, they're always in your mind. They're always occupying your attention. And one thing that she found so corrosive about Trump's presidency, and you could make the same case about Brexit and you could potentially make the same case about um, the government in Australia, is that they occupy more of our consciousness than they ought to. And that's something that Trump loves, something that Putin loves, something that authoritarians the world over love is that they're occupying the real estate between your ears and yeah. i wonder if you yeah. have any thoughts about how to how to escape that well i mean i think it's absolutely right that point i mean i th- and i think that um ultimately it's just a bandwidth issue right isn't it i mean our attention is a finite resource and uh so it comes down to your preferred way of making sure that you are applying some of it to something else so that there is less left over for uh, Trump to colonize. And and also, I think, you know, so absolutely, to some extent, you know, very low-level tactical things like trying to spend a day a week uh, where you don't go onto social media or taking the apps off your phone, which I certainly have done. Yeah, um, did you do that? So that yeah, I only access Twitter, well... 99 out of 100 times that I access Twitter these days, it's through uh, a laptop computer. And that means mm. that, you know, I'm much less likely to do that when I'm... Again, that's uh, it funny. Does, it does a... also mean that I'm more likely to do it when I should be working. But yeah, right. It, but it, I mean, it's almost like the infinite scroll feature seeming so antiquated. Like, I can't remember the last time that I went to a desktop and typed in www.facebook.com and hit, <laughs> hit enter. Like, to me, it's just all, it's just part of the soup that we're all swimming in. It's just there on the front page of my phone, which I know it shouldn't be. I don't even like it. It's just a habit. If I'm taking a piss, I just pull, pull out my phone and see what people are talking about yeah, on Twitter. But, it's this yeah. banal kind of backdrop to existence that I both resent and also don't care enough about to actually bother taking off my phone. So firstly, do bother. That's my first piece of advice if you want it. And then, mm. <laughs> and then um, I think the other thing that, that, you know, it's become a little bit of, a, of an easy thing to say, but I think it really does matter, is this idea of local focus, um, local politics, but not necessarily only local politics. I think one of the great um, huge problems of what's happening right now, certainly still in, in New York, is that everything is virtual of necessity you can't easily get physically involved in um things that are going on in your community which i tend to assume means you know going and helping at the soup kitchen but i think it also means the five-a-side football match i don't think it has to be i don't think this is a point that is limited to sort of um volunteering and, and do-gooding um another thing that 
authoritarian-minded leaders uh, famously love. I mean, this this observation goes back to Hannah Arendt. I think is is keeping people, you know, isolated and separate from each other, so that they are um, so that their only point of of community is that they are all all either back or um, or oppose the the national. Uh, leader mm. and you're sounding and, like and, a covid um, truther here oliver <laughs> like there are people who there are <laughs> people like who that. claim that the whole thing is a big conspiracy to try to uh, introduce authoritarian rule no i do not believe that you know one of the things i think was timothy snyder the historian was has said a number of times is like what you need to do to the extent that there is in our in any um polity sort of certain amount of creeping authoritarianism getting your getting our bodies out into space and occupying physical space and the things that we do and not just being, uh, you know, behind screens is, is tremendously important. It's, it's the way that, you know, it, 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 it creates this kind of, uh, broader territory of civic life on which democracy and politics is one of the things that we do rather than making every single little bit of our world, um, politicized. And mm. it's the same point, right? That actually, if you're going to some, like, I don't know, local board games club with somebody who you might in other contexts hate uh, or or dis- dislike the, intensely the views of, like it, that is, again, is something like you're, you're weaving this fabric that is not all about politics all the time. Now, it's hard because there's been so much geographical sorting that everyone on my block probably does basically agree with me, at least in terms of which way to vote mm. to election but all the same and i'm getting these ideas from robert talese as well i think you know going and doing things in your life where politics just doesn't come up yeah. not this is different from going to seek out people on the other side of the aisle and trying to understand their political views that may have a role but it's just literally like going to events where you just don't know whether yep. the person you're chatting to you know what? As for. as you're talking, I'm I'm just thinking of the virtue of of having a city that is that is conducive to that, and what a great place New York is. I think Sydney, uh, you can do it if you're uh, if you try, and the same in in Melbourne because uh, they're quite permeable cities. But you know, sprawling suburban cities that are dominated by cars are not very conducive to that. I mean, think of New York. Think of Union Union Square Park, or where are the big chess pieces that people can go and just play chess with each other you know it's and, and I think that's washington washington, washington square, square park maybe. that's yes, right. right yeah, yeah. washington yeah. square park you know these are fantastic places i mean and during the during self-isolation my i've been taking my toddlers to different parts of sydney to get exercise you know one of the only justifications for going outside has been to exercise and with as you know toddlers they do need to get a bit of exercise but we've um, sort of bent the rules a little bit by going a little far- farther afield than we probably should but as a result you find yourself exercising outdoors in neighborhoods that are completely different, completely demographically and politically different, that might be part of the conservative heartland, which is very different from the, the latte-sipping, chardonnay-swilling, uh, you know, left-wing elite, <laughs> elite cl- clusters that I live in. Um, and it's been great. It's been great having feeling like you're sharing a, uh, an experience with people who you wouldn't normally, normally come across. And that, yeah, that, that matters. Yeah, no, and I think that's true about New York. Obviously, this is a blue city in a blue state and to get you know unless you're going to spend a lot of time traveling to staten island you're not going to be surrounded with people who vote differently but in the sort of wonderful sort of uh 
uh, ethnic and cultural mix of this city, even though basically all these populations will, will end up voting Democratic at the polls, you definitely have a very wide range of views on a wide variety of social issues. Yeah. You know, and um, and then at the fringes, you have just kind of like extremely eccentric New Yorkers who of whom there are always a few who believe in like any random combination of beliefs that you wouldn't have thought went together <laughs> with each other. So, you know, it's just like, yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. and, that's and great. Even, and as you say, it's, a, one it, of the, yeah. this comes back to your point about not everything having to cleave along political lines, along party political lines. I mean, the, the first generation uh, Chinese, uh, you know, shopkeeper it may vote Democrat, but they have a whole host of ideas about things that are completely alien to you, you know, or the old Greek guy right, in Washington right. Square Park might have incredibly retrograde ideas about uh, about gender politics, for example, even if they end up yep. voting uh, Democrat. We're complicated. We're complicated creatures, hopefully. You know, one hopes. One hopes that we don't all silo ourselves into a predictable set of checkboxes where you know exactly what other people believe simply on the basis of who they voted for. Right. And, you know, I do maintain some faith that even all but the worst of the people that you see on Twitter being appalling, uh, you know, when they're in the diner chatting to the aforementioned, you know, uh, old Greek guy or whatever, like, I don't think they're going to be haranguing him uh, to, to double check his conformity to a whole lot of particular linguistic forms that three years ago nobody had heard of. You know, I don't think. Um, I, I think that. I think that real life. You know, this makes me sound like some kind of luddite, but um, I think. I think. Um, I think real life uh, uh, makes people into the physical world makes people often into the better versions of themselves, and I. That I think is one one important reason that I hope that uh, this uh, isolation lifestyle does not mm. persist and persist. I mean, let's let's just talk about that because, you know, how exactly we unwind this is tricky. Uh, Australia has the good fortune to have been uh, basically well managed uh, during, during this. Uh, we got the first case in the same week that the United States did. Now, granted, there had probably been a lot of community spread in, this, in the US before testing began, um, but Australia did move very quickly to, to close the borders, impose mandatory quarantine under police guard for every, everyone who was coming back. I mean, foreigners can't come, but even returning Australians have to spend two weeks in, um, in a hotel yeah, room yeah. Uh, under police guard. And, and you contrast that to the UK, oh, wow. for example, where only recently, you know, uh, self, uh, self-policed self-isolation has been in place. And yes, Australia yeah, very quickly yeah. ramped up you know, put in a lot of orders to to ramp up the production of ventilators. Luckily, we didn't need them, but just in case, and a lot of testing and huge tracing. The the data company that the government commissioned um, hired uh, former Qantas workers who'd been laid off or furloughed uh, to to do follow up uh, tracing, so that people could be isolated. And as a result, we're now emerging into a. a a world which touch wood is one which we don't have to be terribly afraid of anymore as long as we uh, common sense and wash hands and socially distance. But that's not the case in the UK and the US where populations are, are to the extent that they can start emerging from self-isolation are going to be emerging into a world where you do have to be wary of every stranger and you do have to be cautious and you do have to cover your, your face and things are still a bit surreal. Do you th- How do you see that unfolding and are you optimistic or pessimistic that that that'll be a new normal. Uh, I mean, 
firstly, nobody knows anything, obviously, right? I mean, and this this I think is um, this I think is a very important thing to to bear in mind that mm. like I have found myself um, reacting as a sort of died in the wool pessimist. I found myself becoming a strange kind of optimist as a result of all this. I think because I'm realizing that I went around prior to this pandemic with a kind of all sorts of awful apocalyptic fears and fantasies in my head all the time anyway. So now when anything happens in the real world regarding the pandemic, however bad it is, it's obviously not infinitely bad. And therefore I find myself thinking, oh, well, okay, well, that's not, that's not as bad as it could have been. That's very much my, <laughs> my mindset on all of this. So, and I do kind of feel that, um, so on that matter, I mean, I do think that, uh, you know, obviously there are going to be certain sectors of industry and and hospitality restaurants and things is the obvious example that where you know reducing capacity significantly to keep people distanced could be and already has been obviously but but even going forward when they reopen could be ruinous lots and lots of specific examples of it of it really being awful but but i also think that like i don't know i just think people are very adaptable i'm not sure that wearing a mask and being six feet two meters away from other people completely uh eliminates the possibility of lots of creative social i mean the, one of the things that sort of confused me all the way through this is that i've had the sense that if everyone wore a mask and everyone kept six feet of distance you know if you could magically make every single person in the united states wear a mask and keep six feet of distance from each other at all times then i think it would have been a very short-lived uh phenomenon and neither wearing a mask nor keeping six feet of distance in most circumstances seems like a particularly big deal obviously there are contexts where six feet of distance isn't going to work and it's and it's terrible that it feels my, like uh, a bit of a big deal to, it feels like a bit it. of a big deal to me it feels like i feel like well, I <laughs> there's a sort of social solidarity that comes from being in places with a lot of people in them like i like bars i like clubs i like you know restaurants that are too small where you you're, you're bumping up against the person next to you yeah. i like little noodle stands where you're sitting on a little plastic chair and someone's right next to you slurping their fur or their laksa like there's something convivial I, I, about all of that that i will i totally miss. agree no i totally agree uh, um but i also think that like what i suppose what i mean is it's not that big a deal compared to everybody spends the whole the rest of their lives inside their right inside their homes yeah. right yeah. and and so I suppose what I'm what I'm trying to say is there's something odd about the fact that um, we seem to have slipped into talking about how you know we'll never socialize again. Um, quite apart from I don't know how long it's going to be before whether it's really going to be a new normal indefinitely that, that this kind of distancing stuff happens. There's a lot of potential still there. There's a lot of you know. You, you can i think i'm just trying to get at this i I've, I've been struck by how people go from will because we'll have we may have to observe this or that for a long time that's basically the same as saying you know uh civic connection is over and i think you can already see some creative ways in which people are uh getting around that i don't know if you saw the photo i, I think the, the photos of the French kindergartners having to keep their distance mm. are heartbreaking, but the photos of the photos of the groups of people in Domino Park in New in New York uh, sitting inside uh, circles on the grass. Mm. I mean, you know, it's just a very 
just a very creative solution and it was a and it looked like it was a wonderful um atmosphere and even in my local park prospect park i mean it's not overcrowded it's not a problem but but like um you know uh we're finding our ways of of all getting back out onto the great lawns there and uh and uh watching other people fly kites and the one annoying guy who's always brought a quadcopter drone and all that <laughs> stuff um and and you know it isn't the same i'm not going to i'm not trying to say it's 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 it doesn't feel like a loss that i hope we can uh that I hope we can, uh, you know, mm. not have to put up with anymore at some point. But, but it isn't, it, it it isn't everybody stand, staying at home with the door shut and the lights off. That's yeah, no, that's true. And it, obviously, one of the things that that we should be grateful for, going back to the Stephen Pinker argument, and should we be grateful for anything, or should we always be comparing it to uh, a superior hypothetical utopian future? One of one thing that I am grateful for is that the contagion doesn't seem to be terribly contagious when you are outdoors. Um, there, you know, there, there are several case studies, such as Australia and New Zealand, for example. New Zealand went into full-scale lockdown, closed all of the coffee shops and restaurants and everything and parks. You know, People were literally hunkered down and sheltering in place, whereas Australia took a, uh, a looser approach and you were still able to uh, go to the beach if you were actually exercising. You couldn't lie around on the beach socialising, but you could walk along the beach or you could, go, you could still go surfing at most places. There were beaches that clo- were closed by local councils because of overcrowding but generally life could still sort of go on you could still get a takeaway coffee you could you know restaurants didn't close for takeaway and so on and um, the result was exactly the same what seems to matter is testing and tracing and isolating and quarantine Um, so you're right Right. that the ability to go to a park and to wander through prospect park and look at children playing together is um, a lot better than the potential alternative of Um, us all being imprisoned i mean we haven't talked we haven't talked about the, what the uh what's going to be happening economically and that of course is a very uh is mm. a is a completely separate uh a completely separate thing again i think that you know people thrive in extraordinary situations but uh you know uh the the impact of uh the what's going to happen to the economy on civic life is a whole you know it's a whole other yeah. topic. So I'm once again I'm just arguing against my most recent <laughs> the most recent point I made. But that's a, this is my that's what I like. My failure in life. It's no, no, wild, it's very uh, good. Having complicated ideas wild, that you have to yeah. balance is good. <laughs> um, yeah, no, and I and I, I agree that coming back to the question of we are more than just who we vote for, and uh, I would hope that we all have complicated, conflicting ideas about things. I think there's a there's been a bit of bit too much demonization of people who are really worried about the economic impact of the lockdown as if they're right-wing nut jobs who are denying um, the the seriousness of of coronavirus uh, and we should be able to hold in our head two two concerns at the same time one that you know it's a contag- it's a terrible contagion that you have to get on top of but two that it's not crazy to worry about the uh, the lives that are being ruined by the lockdown as well economically speaking no absolutely i mean i think that the i I think that certain members of that constituency uh have sort of crazily conflicting views like like we should reopen america but also it's an imposition on your liberty to wear a mask when obviously what you should be saying is let's reopen america and 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 all wear wear masks masks. (laughs) Uh, right if if that's your if that's your priority if, if the reopening is your priority but um yeah, no. I mean, there are there are trade offs here, and as people have said, you know, if, even if you're measuring it, even if you want to say that that human deaths are the only moral metric, though people will 
die as a result of all sorts of factors relating to the impact on the economy. People will die from isolation in lockdown, you know, and, and I mean, even if you wanted to just do a very sort of strict utilitarian, how many people are going to die? There are definitely, there's definitely a debate to be had there. Mm. Um, in your book, you talk about uh, essentially how to be happy and the how ineffable happiness is. Um, do you think that the, that Foc- the focus that the pandemic is giving us on having to surmount a specific uh, trial is a good or a bad thing? Is there a silver lining here? I mean, it's dangerous territory. I, uh, I, you know, it's the kind of question that suddenly makes me very aware of my own privilege even though i get very annoyed by people making that kind of argument on twitter um and also just my own luck so far right i mean you know the 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 i i'll i i reserve the right to have a radically different opinion about all of this uh depending on what happens to the people closest to me i do think there's a very important point here which is that this kind of crisis draws your attention to certain things that were sort of always true all along um from the sort of low sort of everyday ones like you know i think we're seeing now that um a lot of uh people are learning that people who haven't lost their jobs you know and who are working happily from home are learning that actually you know commuting an hour a day uh just to be able to show that you're sitting at a desk is kind of a bit pointless and maybe uh, maybe we don't need to completely go back to that in in all respects right up to the sort of rather grand philosophical point that you know we are everyone now feels or at least this is maybe changing but a few weeks ago everyone was like around me was very much very very anxious about the fact that they don't know what they didn't know what like the next day or the next week held and of course, as, as you then want to say uh, to them or to yourself, that's what you're feeling like. That's always yeah. true. When did it's you? That, uh, <laughs> when did that, you know what right, next exactly. week would hold? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a lovely old sermon by uh, that C.S. Lewis gave in the during the Second World War, which I had mentioned in something that I wrote, where he sort of says that the war doesn't actually create an absolutely new situation. It just reveals what was always the case that 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 um, we've always lived on a precipice. And people are wrong to compare the war to normal life because life has never been normal. Mm. And one of the things he's trying to say there is that we sh- that you know, crisis is not a time to say, well, how dare you carry on doing historical scholarship in a crisis? How dare you carry on making art and music in a crisis? Because because actually, every single bit of art and music and historical scholarship that's ever happened has been made, uh, you know in the teeth of mm. uh, death and oblivion and uncertainty and having no idea what, what's going to happen tomorrow. And as I say, I think for, I think for sort of anxiously minded people of in uh, that, and I include myself in that, there is also this kind of sense of, um, Oh, okay. Now something real is, mm. it, it, this is actually happening. Mm. This isn't the kind of thing I go through my days like, vaguely imagining that terrible things are going to happen it is actually happening and for many many people it's absolutely terrible but at the same time it's kind of finite it has edges um and i wonder you know people often 
uh, berate the younger generation today for being sort of uh, emotionally fragile. And I've seen some people argue that this is going to make that worse, but may- maybe it'll have the opposite effect. You know, yeah. this thing has happened to all of us and the vast majority of us are going to survive it. And like, you know, we're going to, we're, we're going to have proved something about mm. our emotional resilience to ourselves. And, uh, you know, there's this idea of post-traumatic growth that uh, often doesn't get a look in uh, when people undergo severe personal traumas. And, and we, we talk a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder, but, but post-traumatic growth is a very, very common uh, reaction to terrible things happening to people on an individual level. And I wonder if there'll be some kind of parallel civic uh, equivalent, because, you know, like, uh, if we can if we can weather this, maybe maybe we can weather more than we than we thought. That kind of idea. That's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I I have actually just been writing about how the bushfires in Australia this past summer may have had some unintended uh, upsides in terms of preparing us for the pandemic because we we exited one national nightmare and and stumbled directly into another and maybe there was a certain resilience certainly a political uh, responsiveness that happened to the pandemic that you mightn't have had had we not all just gotten uh, knocked knocked about the head with a, another disaster and then i sort of think maybe the pandemic is going to be a useful lesson for the coming disruptions of climate chaos or something you know maybe there are, maybe maybe all of this is just part of a great a great big learning yeah, I mean, one can hope. I don't think that's a. I don't think that's a, a, a sort of unfeasibly optimistic view to take. Anyway, mm. who knows? Who knows? Uh, wonderful to talk to you, Oliver. Thanks so much for your time. Take care of yourself, and um, when Park when Park Slope starts to to open, have a, a lovely little meal for me. <laughs> Thank you. I will. And thanks for asking me. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you. 